So as we continue in our uh, Love Incorruptible series, we haven't talked a lot about that idea of Love Incorruptible lately. Uh, certainly needs to come into view today as we talk about marriage. Um, marriage is what brings us together today. Um, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. This is a tough, uh, this is a tough sermon to preach. Um, I want to get up here and tell you like awesome things about my marriage, and I certainly can do that, but I want to be very real uh, about the fact that I'm not an expert and that I do not have a perfect marriage. Ashley and I have been married for 27 years. Um, 21 of that has been spent with you or some version of you, uh, so some of you know more than others about us. Um, but uh, it has been awesome uh, in so many ways, and it's been tough in, in other ways. Uh, I, uh, I think that when we started the church, one of the things that we, that we I remember talking about with uh, the, the small group of people that we started with uh, was that we wanted to do you know, church differently, for sure. And one of those, some of those things were that we wanted to be uh, authentic with each other uh, about things that we didn't talk about enough in other expressions of corporate stuff uh, that we call church. And a lot of those things had to do with marriage and parenting and finances, hard, hard questions, hard things to talk about, things that we find to be like socially unacceptable sometimes to, to go too deep into. But um, we did that uh, for a while, and I think we did a really good job of it. Uh, I think we have not done as, as good of a job as we should be doing of late, and I hope that we can return to that. Uh, I'm not sure how deep we're supposed to go into it. And when I was a youth minister, uh, I felt like that uh, the students had lots of questions about marriage and wanted to know about us, uh, that our... Uh, our life was lived out in, with them in, uh, in, in some very close ways that they had access to being in our home a lot and uh, sometimes even snuck into our backyard and didn't tell us and then they scared us. Uh, one of those people was uh, Amy's oldest son, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Not Nick, the other one. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not advocating that we sneak into, into each other's backyards and spy on one another. But I did like the, the kind of the accountability and the understanding that, that uh, I was in their life and they were going to ask questions about what we were doing and how we were doing. And so I think that uh, the more of that that we can do with one another, the better. We've got to ask questions. We've got to be in each other's lives. I just don't think that we talk about our marriages enough. Um, and as a result, some of us in this room, some of us in this congregation are perhaps right now suffering in ways that you feel very alone. 
you have one another to go to with that stuff, but that has proven to be difficult because it usually turns back around into more problems or more arguments. And yet our pride keeps us from reaching out to one another and giving one another access. He's struggling uh, in, in ways that uh, we don't even know we're struggling. We just don't know that it could be better. We've settled for something. And we don't talk about it enough with one another to know that, well, maybe it could be different. Or, or maybe they found something that, you know, is, is working in the way that they relate to one another that we need to learn from instead of just settling into uh, our dysfunction. Maybe you're entering into a new phase of life. You just had kids or you just added a kid. Uh, congratulations, Justin, uh, by the way. Uh, what's the name again? Uh, Theodore. Theodore came Friday night. So we welcome him into the family. Uh, so maybe things are changing. Maybe kids are moving out of the house. Maybe more kids are in the house. Uh, Lots of things are, are going on constantly that, that change the dynamic of how we relate to each other. And you need to hear from perhaps other people that have gone through something similar. So talking about it, uh, some of you just have like awesome stuff to offer us and we, we need to hear from you on that. I believe that no matter where, um, how, how bad some of it may seem to you right now, or even how good uh, some of it may seem to you right now. I believe that God wants so much more for our marriages. And I believe that in all of those things, that uh, if we will continue to pursue him in the ways that Paul has been admonishing us to in uh, our study of Ephesians, that we will begin to see breakthrough in incredible ways. Uh, whatever it is in your marriage that you have settled for or thought that this just can't uh, be different. This is just kind of what uh, we're stuck with and, and who we are. Um, I just want you to put that aside and, and put, or, or put that into to Jesus' hands and allow him to change that and believe that he can change that. Um, breakthrough is coming in, in those ways. Just a quick overview of kind of where we're headed today. And I just want to say, uh, as we don't talk about marriage enough, we don't talk about singleness enough either. Uh, unfortunately, that's not what this sermon is about. But I just want to acknowledge that that is uh, something that the church needs to embrace more and, and talk about more. You may be, as a single person today, thinking, what is this? What am I going to do with this? Um, maybe you're going to be married one day, and that's how you apply it. Uh, students, uh, you're starting to think about like what's next in life. So hopefully you can apply this to some ideals about what needs to be for your future and also kind of live into that in any of your dating relationships as well. Um, and, and if you have been called to singleness, uh, then uh, one, I, I would love for you to like share that with more people so that we, we know that and know how to better support you. So uh, don't be, we need to do everything, as married people, we need to do everything we can, uh, but also as single people, we need to do every, everything that, that you can to get rid of this idea that the church today 
is pretty much for married people. And I know that uh, if you're married, you probably don't think about this a lot. If you're single, you probably think about it a lot. And you need, if you're married, need to hear from more single people on what that looks like for them. And we need to do a better job uh, of being community and being family for one another. So, again, not the sermon today, but just wanted to make some observations here. Okay, so where we're going is uh, coming out of what we've talked about already is our context is that we're, we're supposed to be spirit-filled Jesus followers who are living in mutual submission. So that was verse 21. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. It was all of last week. Go back and listen to it. Uh, but that's the important, very important, very, very important context for everything that we're talking about today. Secondly, uh, we want to look at what does it mean then to be a spirit-filled wife or to be a spirit-filled husband? And then finally, uh, we want to see that the purpose of Paul's teaching today is really twofold. It's to teach us about what God-honoring marriages should look like, but it's also a gospel proclamation. And so that's for everybody. So whether you're married or not, that should come full circle in a way that connects with you and Jesus. This passage is really important in our day, in our culture, because our culture is doing everything it can to redefine what marriage is. Now, marriage in the, the, the purest form is a biblical uh, idea. And so if we're going to really talk about marriage, we have to talk about it in the context of the Bible. Now, we've made it culturally into something else and, and technically, legally made it into something else today. But if we're really going to talk about what God meant about marriage, we have to go back to the Bible. Uh, and that's what we're going to do today. Um, it's also important because we're wrestling with this in a, in a new way in Western civilization that we really had never have before. There's, there's no, like, there's nothing to draw on and say, well, this is how to handle this. We're kind of making it up as we go along. And that's why going back to scripture is so important. Uh, we even see that there's hostility to traditional forms of marriage. Uh, and and uh, we're going to encounter that more and more. But this is not a cultural war. Please don't, like, just put it in that category. This is truly a spiritual war. This is spiritual warfare. This is stuff going on that we can't see as the enemy fights for control in our lives uh, and, and fights against the way of Jesus in our world. John Stott's a theologian, and this is his definition of marriage, and I think it's a great one. Uh, it says, marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by a public leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutually supportive partnership, and normally crowned by the gift of children. All those things come from Scripture to define uh, what biblical marriage is. And that's kind of where we're coming from when we talk about marriage. That's kind of what we want to live into and what we want to use as our framework uh, for a definition of marriage. It's not a perfect one. It's not the only one. Uh, and there are certainly things about it that you could say, well, uh, are you saying that uh, if we don't have kids, that that means that we don't have uh, a God-ordained marriage? Absolutely not. He's just saying that normally that's just kind of the way things work. So um, another thing we want to recognize is that, that traditional marriage and biblical marriage are not the same thing. 
right? So let's focus on what it means to have a biblical marriage and not a traditional marriage. We have melded the two in many ways, and we'll look at some of the abuse of that in a second, but we want to focus on what it means to have a biblical marriage. And then also, as we look at the scripture, just know that Paul's not giving in this passage of scripture an exhaustive theology of marriage. This is not, he's not going to tell us everything we need to know about marriage. So as we move forward, these next three passages are, are what we have, what has come to be referred to as the house codes. So it's kind of how we're supposed to live out uh, Christianity in some specific kind of relationships. And house codes were something that they were common in uh, Paul's day. There was understanding of like how things were supposed to be done. And the three categories that uh, are focused on wives, children, and slaves, uh, what, what they were supposed to do or not supposed to do were kind of the more the common way of looking at it in his day. Uh, what were wives supposed to do or not do? What were children supposed to do or not do? Uh, as as uh, just fun in that of society and how were slaves supposed to relate to their masters? So things were written in that direction. The interesting thing about what we have here is uh, these Christian house codes aren't found anywhere else. There's no other like source that we can look to and say, yeah, they were kind of doing it like that too. Uh, these are unique to scripture. And so kind of a reframing, Paul is kind of saying for, for the new believers uh, in Ephesus to say, this is what it should look like in these categories. And he actually focuses on the responsibilities of the people with more power in his culture. The men, the parents, and the masters. And those are the things we're going to break down over the next few weeks, today being marriage. And you'll see, if you've got a copy of the scripture, if you don't, there's some of these on the back table. There's a, a full Bible on the back table too, and pens if you want it. But uh, just looking at that, you can, uh, in, in verse 21 through uh, 33, you can glance at it and see that, that wives are talked about not so much and husbands quite a bit. So he's focused on the, the men, the, the husbands, and what our responsibilities are in this much more. And that's kind of a groundbreaking thing in his culture. Uh, early Christians at this time were being accused of being too focused on freedom too focused on love, too focused on following this Jesus guy. And so what was happening is they were being accused of destroying society as, as they knew it. So these are the hippies of, of their day. Like Christians are the, the, the crazy liberals that are just messing everything up for the rest of us. And uh, Paul is addressing that in a unique kind of way that we'll see as we move forward. There are three important notes about these house codes. One is that they're motivated by the need to avoid slander on the church. Okay, so Paul wants to be very careful that uh, the, the culture is understanding what the church is about in a way that uh, takes away their ability to, to, to talk bad about the church as much as he can. Uh, secondly, they're focused on Christian behavior. This is a, an ethic that he wants to get across about how we're supposed to live in uh, our household. And then third, they're, they're addressing the same three groups that other Greek and Jewish writers had already addressed, but they're actually focusing on the responsibilities, like I said earlier, of the husbands, fathers, and the masters. So important things to know about 
the house codes as we get into them. So verse 21, we said, starts uh, this passage, ends the last passage, starts this passage. It's the context for everything that we're talking about, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We said submission means to arrange ourselves under voluntarily, to give up our rights, to make decisions uh, just for ourselves uh, without considering and involving other people. In this case, our spouse. Uh, As Christians, we're called to live in mutual submission. And without that mutual submission, we really don't have the church. We really don't have uh, the right kind of Christian relationship that God intended for us to have. It's impossible to have biblical community. We can strive for it in all kinds of other ways. If we don't have mutual submission to one another, we're never going to get there. We'll never achieve it. Uh, We're called to be servants of one another, to put someone else's needs ahead of our own. And we said the enemy of, of submission is our own self-centeredness. Interestingly enough, we come to a lot of weddings and you hear somebody stand up and read 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, uh, the opposite of all those things that get us into trouble. So that's why it's an important passage for marriage, for sure. That's an important passage for all of our relationships uh, because we don't want to be impatient. We don't want to be irritable. We don't want to use ungracious speech. We don't want to... Uh, think about how much uh, someone else has it better than us. We don't want to hold past wrongs against another person. But yet that's pretty much what we do a lot of in marriage. Uh, We focus on those things that are really very self-centered and it comes out in these ways, uh, irritability, ungracious speech, etc. So mutual submission takes all that away. It removes that from the relationship. It focuses on the right kind of thing. So uh, let's move on to verse 22 and really get into it. Starts with, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why did it have to start that way, huh, ladies? Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, It actually doesn't. So uh, let me just kind of relieve some of that. Uh, The word submit in the original Greek, is not even there. So what we have when we read the text is Christ, wives submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. So there's not a reiteration or a separate kind of submission that's supposed to happen for wives. It's just the ongoing and the first example of what submission looks like in the home, and in the marriage relationship. So um, there's a lot of of stuff that's been done wrong with with that as we've misused that word and that terminology. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want to also make note of something that was going on in Paul's culture as we talk about the scandal of the church and how um, it's being perceived and Paul wants to make sure that that's corrected. Uh, make sure that, that, that these early believers have, have the right kind of reputation uh, in, in their world. Uh, women, we have to remember, are viewed as very inferior to men. And they're given very little freedom. So if you were to have been born in this time, uh, if you were lucky enough uh, to be allowed to continue to live as a woman, because that was a thing too, because you weren't all that valued. And so 
there was consideration for not keeping you around, unfortunately. Um, but as you grew up, you would have very little education. Uh, if you were a respectable woman, you would not be seen a whole lot. You would uh, not be venturing outside the ho house too much. In fact, when you were in the house, you'd even live in a separate part of the house. And if you were seen during the day, like in the doorway or in the window, that could be considered scandalous. That was a bad thing. You couldn't be a witness in a court of law. You couldn't adopt. You couldn't enter into a contract. You couldn't own property. You couldn't receive an inheritance. You were seen as less intelligent, less moral, and basically the reason for sin and temptation. So, we could rewind to the beginning of this, and we got some things to be thankful about in our day and time, right? Um, we've come a long way. Um, maybe not far enough, for sure, but uh, we are operating in a different context than Paul is writing in. So, what are we going to do with that? Uh, in the early church, they became so scandalous because you can imagine all that in play. And here's this group of people that are freely meeting together, men and women, taking the Lord's Supper together, which is a big deal. Uh, talking about things like this from Paul's letter to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ. That's against the kingdom ethic of the day. And, and so uh, hopefully you can, can see, you know, some of the scandal that, that's going on. When uh, he says in Colossians 4, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, this is what he's thinking about. Things like this. We've got to think about what else, how we're being perceived. And then in, in Titus 2.5, he says, to be submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled, uh, so that, uh, that, that God's word would have the right kind of reception in the world. Things had to be considered about how men and women were relating to one another in this culture. So we have to take this, into context, this context into consideration when we interpret this text. So a question may come up. If that's all true, is, is all this so historically conditional that we just need to ignore it? Um, is, is there's just so much going on that, that what we read from Paul just doesn't really apply to us? I would say no, and most scholars would say no, because they would also say that all biblical statements are somewhat historically conditioned. So we, we can't just throw, I mean, it was written for a people of, of the day, yes. It was actually being circulated as teaching in the early church. But in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the way that, that God has intended for that, that truth and that teaching to be passed down for us, there's still much for us to receive from it. And so we continue to go back to it with those understandings and try to mine out what is, what is it he's saying to us. And that's the task of uh, Bible study. We still need to be concerned about how relationships work in, in the house, um, but also real, realize that they're not exactly the same relationships that uh, when Paul wrote. In other words, 
if we're just starting, a, a, if we're not using this text and we just want to talk about like what's some good ways for uh, our marriages to work or, or our parenting to work, uh, we're, we're not going to group wives with children and with slaves. Okay, that's just not our culture. That's not how we're, 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 not, we're not going to see uh, our, our wives somehow in the same category as our children and certainly not in the same category as slaves. So uh, it says, uh, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a, that's a big part of it. What does that mean, as to the Lord? Does it mean that wives are to submit to their husbands in a similar way that they submit to the Lord? Yeah, that's, that's a good possibility. Does it mean that wives are sum, to submit to their husbands as if they are the Lord? Absolutely not. Um, or uh, the, kind of the better version of this is that wives are to submit to their husbands as part of the way in which they submit to the Lord. So again, going back to the context, the fact that that word's not there, the continuation of the idea of submission. Uh, we we uh, just kind of move into that for wives. A wife should properly recognize her husband's role and his responsibility. The fear of Christ, though, is different. She doesn't respect you, husband, in the same way. She, she shouldn't be asked to do this ever in the same way that she should respect, fear, have reverence for the Lord. Um, he is perfectly loving. He is holy. He is the eternal judge. You are not. So we don't get to carry that mantle around uh, just because it kind of looks that way from this scripture. Paul's not telling wives to submit to every man either. She, he's only saying to submit to your husband. And so in this way, in this context, uh, he's not putting women underneath men in any way. He's not declaring that the husband is head over all women either. That just because you're a man that you're the boss of women. Uh, that's not how it works. Remember, submission in this whole context is voluntary. So that's what you do when you submit yourselves to one another in a marriage relationship. You voluntarily enter into this kind of uh, relationship. Verse 23, sorry. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself, and is himself its savior. One of the most misunderstood and abused texts in all of the New Testament right here. Uh, and I alluded to it just a while ago. Husbands, we're not the head of, of our wives in a way that we're the boss. Even in the way that we're the leader. Certainly not that we're the authority. Certainly not that we're the source. We are responsible for. We are responsible for our wives for their well-being, for, um, for their benefit. It's not about us. And it assumes that we have oneness with the Lord and equality exists in that oneness with the Lord between husband and wife. It's a misinterpretation to think wives always have a subservient role and that husbands always make the decisions. So traditional marriage, not biblical marriage. So that's not what we're after. Now, it doesn't mean it may not work that way for you in your marriage. It's just not 
a mandate from God that it worked that way. Okay, you came up with that. Um, and that's subject to conversation. Um, headship is not about enjoying a privilege. It's about being a servant. And as I said before, submit's not even there in the Greek text. So um, we just have to remember this patriarchal society that Paul is writing to. And it was a given that the husband was the head. Uh, it, it, uh, it, well, he was just, you know, acknowledging that like it's a matter of fact, but then saying, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior, because he's setting us up for a deeper teaching than what the culture thought it meant to be the head. And he's now comparing it to Christ. Uh, again, I just, I can't say it enough. The text has nothing to do with the inferiority of women or of all women being submissive to all men, or of women in positions of leadership. That's not what this text is about. It's about all Christians being submissive to one another, and more specifically, how that plays out in marriage. Husbands, that means, don't automatically have the deciding vote. So if you disagree with what this text says, you don't get to have the, the final vote in that, husbands, and make the call. You have to work that out together in mutual submission. It assumes an ideal situation. Okay, we need to, we need to make that very clear. Uh, everybody's working in the right way. Everybody is mutually submitting. That's how this works. Uh, what about problems? Paul didn't really talk about the problems in marriage here. Uh, because this is meant to be a foundational text for marriage. He assumes that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be able to work out those problems. If we're really submitting to each other in the body of Christ, we're going to be able to work out, help each other to work those things out. Paul didn't address society, but he focused on the gospel. So he's not like trying to change everything. He's just trying to proclaim the gospel as it relates to marriage. And that included the new reality that we talked about from Galatians chapter 3, that there is no male or female. We're, we're all equal in the Lord's sight. He focused on us living those, those kind of lives that were committed to and motivated by our love for Jesus. And he wanted us to know that the marriage relationship mirrors, it's the best mirror that we have evidence of in scripture of God's relationship with us. It's the practical kind of example that he put on this earth for us to live out and say, this is what it should look like uh, as you relate to me. And, and he compares it to that in this passage. Headship is not identical to Christ's headship. Husbands aren't lord over anything, okay? Even if they think they are. We're not. Um, the point is for husbands to take up the responsibility to give themselves up for their wives in a similar way that Jesus did for the church. That's what's been put on us. We need to be givers, guys, and not takers in a marriage relationship. That's the mandate, to give up our self-centeredness and to seek the well-being of your wife. Again, both people should be living in and for the Lord um, for this to work. The, because the real head of the marriage is not the husband. The real head of the marriage is Christ. And that's who we look to. Verse 24, he says, as the church submits. Uh, but is, is there in uh, the, the original manuscripts. It's, it's better than the word now, probably. Uh, but as the church submits, to draw the distinction between 
husbands, you're, we know that you're not going to be able to do it. This, it it's, but the example is Jesus in the church. Um, what if husbands don't do it this way? What if they don't practice mutual submission and love? First Peter 3 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He's saying that there is a place for you being able to, to win over your husband, even though he's not acting the right way. But again, an ideal. Like, does that always work? Uh, and is that always the expectation? Submitting in everything means all areas of life, but it doesn't mean that you're submitting in sinful ways. The scripture is very clear that you follow God, not men. And so, wives, you do not have to submit to a husband who is not following the Lord, asking you to do something that is against following the Lord. Now, you can, as the... the First Peter scripture says, but that's not how it has to work. And you certainly should not submit to abuse in any form coming from your husband. Paul is not teaching that. He's putting the responsibility on men to not ever be that way to begin with. Our ideals have not been lived up to, though, in, in our world. And in the church as well. And damage has been done. We've not been the salt and light that our culture needs. We've not been the salt and light that our families need. Um, and be appealing. Uh, settle for cheap substitutes because we haven't been out there like giving them something to be appealing uh, in, um, in contrast. Feminism is not the gospel. But the gospel does include equality. We just read that in Galatians. Old values related to sex, race, economic status are not going to hold up anymore in Christ. And they don't define the relationships that we have in the kingdom of God. Christian men should be about supporting all women. Now, a couple of other observations just as we... Think about like how other ways that we can relate to. You can go another direction with this and actually idolize one another or one spouse idolizing the other. Uh, we have that problem in my house. I, I have to work through that all the time. Ashley, stop it. Um, no. Uh, but that's a real thing. I mean, you can just like get so focused on one another that you forget that your real focus should be on the Lord. And so don't let that be the pinnacle of your marriage relationship. Uh, the pinnacle is are we both radically following Jesus together. Um, the other thing is that you get so caught up in the idea of just really, you know, submitting to one another um, that you think that that means that you don't have any individuality. Uh, you are still a unique person. You still have unique callings and giftings from the Lord. You don't give those up just because you mutually submit. So just a couple of things there. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ and the church is an important part of God's story. Uh, he talks about Israel this way in Isaiah and Hosea and Ezekiel. Um, the ancient culture would not expect anything but husbands to rule 
And this text tells something differently. He tells husbands to love and to sacrifice in the same way that Jesus gave himself up for the church. It's a nurturing, it's a care that makes sure that the wife's needs are met. And it's not the natural kind of love. It's not just like infatuation or uh, even lust. It's, it's not just what comes naturally to us guys that we're supposed to love out of. Like that stuff may or may not be there uh, at any given time. Uh, and that's not what a marriage relationship needs to be founded on. It's about sacrifice. Um, because that stuff is never going to be enough. You're never going to be able to love enough in the right way. Um, it can't be driven by your feelings. It's got to be about you following Jesus. And so as you think about it in, in terms of Jesus and the church, think about your wife and your relationship with your wife in this way. Jesus does not have another church that he looks at and desires. He only desires this one. There's, there's nothing in another person. There's nothing is worth it. There's nothing about our career or our hobby that is worth it to God for us to look at more than our wife and to serve more than our wife and to give our time to more than our wife. It's a picture of his relationship with us. Why didn't Paul tell wives to love their husbands, though? That would have been a good thing, it seems like. Well, there wasn't much talk about that in their culture either. That it was just like not all that necessary, really. I mean, they were basically slaves to their husbands, so eh, they had to do whatever they said. Um, love, eh, whatever. Um, but what Paul is doing is, is basically saying, well, I don't need to say that. Um, submission, if you've got the mutual submission thing down, which is what this whole thing is couched in, then you've got the agape love thing down, which is more important than any other kind of love that you're going to be able to manufacture or have for another person. So if you're doing that, then you're doing well. Paul's instructions confront and change culture in some subversive ways, though. All right, so verse 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blameless. A lot of, like, this is what Jesus does for us talk. Uh, he has sanctified us. He has set us apart. Uh, your spouse is set apart from everyone else. That's a, that's a unique relationship that you've given yourself to. Um, we love our wives as our own bodies uh, in verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul's drawing from the Genesis uh, story where two have become one. And the idea is that you would never hate or you'd never neglect your wife because you would never hate or neglect yourself. So uh, that, that's what he's drawing on here. Verse 30, because we are members of one of his body, he wants us to see that the union that we have is so powerful that we are actually part of Jesus. Part of Jesus and, and part of one another. And that the church has no other agenda except to follow Jesus. He's the head. The elders don't lead the church. I don't lead the church. Jesus lead the church, leads the church. We just help 
uh, in a unique way with, uh, and have responsibility to, to help with that. But we're not the leaders. Jesus is the leader of the church. Most of our problems in church can be solved if we remember that following Jesus and submitting to one another is the most important thing that we do. Christ set us apart and cleansed us. Christ did that uh, for now and for the future. So we need to live into that now. In verse 31 and 32 refers to Christ and the church. Um, this mystery, he says, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not just about marriage. Yes, this teaching is about marriage. It's important for marriage, but there's something bigger going on here for Paul. The body theology is kind of coming to its ultimate uh, expression in this verse, that we're a part of Christ. And we're part of Christ together. It means we can't think individually as a Christian. Apply that to your marriage. Apply that everywhere. That oneness with Christ is the basis for everything that we do. Apply that to your marriage. Apply that to other relationships. It's not something that we aspire to be. It's not, we just, we, we hope that one day we'll have this kind of marriage or we hope that one day we'll have this relationship with Christ in this way. It's who we are already in Jesus. We don't have to be good enough to attain it. It's already who we are. Live out of that. A gospel without this understanding for the need and the possibility of oneness is falling short. As we close, uh, a guy named Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this very Sunday uh, in 1886, ironically. And in it, he said, this love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. How often have I said to you that if I had heard that Christ pitied us, I could understand that. If I had heard that Christ had mercy upon us, I could comprehend that. Another and a much more extraordinary thing. Love between mortal and mortal is quite natural and comprehensible. But love between the infinite God and us poor, sinful, finite creatures, through con though conceivable in one sense, is utterly inconceivable in another. Who can grasp such an idea? Who can understand it? Especially when it comes in this form, that he... He loved me and gave himself for me. This is the miracle of miracles. I just want you to rest in that and, and let that wash over you for a second. As the band comes and we get, we get ready to take communion, that's why we're taking communion. That's why we're singing, because of this love. We, we, we've come to know this love. Moments of worship or, and moments of uh, of taking the Lord's Supper together. Those are uh, opportunities to experience, to be reminded of God's love. So uh, let's do that. Husbands, um, submit to your wife, but love them sacrificially with the Lord as your example. Wives, just keep on doing what you're asked to do in all uh, uh, of life's relationships and submit to your husbands as well. Respect them in the responsibility that they have. And everybody know that you're deeply loved by Jesus, that he's given you perfect love. That, that's, that love is what's going to drive out whatever fear you have about your relationship or about your own insecurities, whatever shame that you have right now. He wants you to experience his love. 
doesn't want want us to just talk about it. He wants you to keep striving to experience it with one another as well. Why don't we do something crazy and have marriages that reflect this in our world? Why don't we encourage that? Why don't we draw that out in one another? Let's be scandalous in our culture in a different sort of way because of the kind of marriages that we have. Y'all can come on up. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the unfathomable love that you have expressed to us in your broken body, in your shed blood. We'll never know the extent of, of what all that means until we get to the other side probably, but let us just taste a little bit of it. And so as we taste uh, this uh, memorial right now, uh, would you remind us that we are loved? And in that, would you help us to love one another better? Amen. Come and receive.